Welcome to Teaching Artist Podcast, a show dedicated to discussions of teaching art to kids, making art, and how those things overlap and feed each other. I'm Rebecca Potts, your host, a visual arts teaching artist. is our final full interview of the year. Ah, 2020 is almost over. I will share a little recap mini episode before the end of the month, and then we'll be taking a little break. If you are celebrating this time of year, have a wonderful holiday. I'm feeling hopeful and excited about the possibilities 2021 holds. And I'm sending that hope out to you right now. I loved hearing about the ideas behind Hannah Zimmerman's beautiful work, lush greenery, the ephemera of an artist's life, and the occasional cat stare out from her paintings. Within the repetition of stripes, careful color choices, and chairs without bodies to hold are comments on feminism and space as Hannah contemplates her place in this world. She talked about how she uses collage as a way to experiment with ideas and aesthetics, like a creative playground. Her use of found materials there is a departure from the intentionally personal materials in her still lifes, which she also uses for soft sculpture. And that connection between her drawing and painting practice and her work with textiles is so clear. She considers this work translations of objects. What a beautiful way to think about it. We talked about the significance that objects and places have and how they tell stories about people. Hannah also shared some helpful teaching advice and encouragement, especially for those of us not yet back to teaching in person. It was really heartening to hear about the safety protocols and the benefits she's experiencing being back to in-person teaching during this pandemic. Hannah Zimmerman is an artist and educator based in Cincinnati, Ohio. She earned her MFA from the Massachusetts College of Art and Design and a BFA and BS in Art Education from Miami University in Ohio. She's in her sixth year of teaching art at a public high school and is currently the artist-in-residence at Manifest Gallery in Cincinnati. Zimmerman's interdisciplinary practice uses quiet interior spaces as a documentation of time and as a way to explore identity through introspection. So I am here with Hannah Zimmerman, and I'm really excited to hear about your work, but also your teaching. And I like to kind of start with just that background. How did you become an artist and a teacher? And did one come first? Yeah, so I was actually raised by two teachers. Uh, And yeah, my mom is a fourth grade teacher, and my dad has taught history and government and been involved with like athletic departments and that kind of thing. So I was around education from before I could even remember. And I knew from a very young age that 
teaching was something that I was interested in. I loved the process of learning. I loved the opportunity to like connect with people and have even teaching my brother different things, whether he liked it or not. (laughs) Um, But, you know, having that opportunity to help someone learn something new. So Mm -hmm. teaching was always kind of in the back of my mind, even from a very young age. And it wasn't until high school. I mean, I loved art. Art was always my favorite thing to do, but I didn't know a lot of, I didn't really know anyone who was an artist Mm -hmm. or have a bunch of role models of people who were pursuing an artistic path. So it wasn't until high school where I was getting a lot more invested in my art classes and realizing that, you know, maybe this is something that I could pursue and and realizing that being an art educator could be a great opportunity to combine some of my passions into one career opportunity. And so, yeah, it was kind of funny because I was applying for undergrad and I had the idea, even as I was applying, I was like, oh, I'm still kind of up in the air. Do I want to do art education? Do I want to do elementary education? But when I was applying for school, it was a drop down menu. So I had to make a decision between one or the other. And so I just clicked on art education. And honestly, I never looked back from there. It was so it was just definitely the right decision for me. Mm -hmm. And I think as I've gotten farther in that path, I've only realized more and more how important art is specifically. And I've just been diving deeper and deeper into my own artistic practice and and learning how to take myself more seriously as an artist and a teacher in combination. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that is a big challenge for, especially for those of us who are really serious about teaching. And if teaching was sort of this like natural thing you grew up with. I like I was the same way. My mom's a teacher and like her, all of my aunts and uncles, everybody's teachers. <laughs> so it just felt really natural. But being an artist wasn't something that I had role models for. So that's yeah, I feel like that makes it more difficult to kind of embrace that role and really think of yourself as an artist. Yeah, that's it's challenging. Mm-hmm. And then also I've been thinking a lot and we can certainly talk about this later too yeah. within my own work. I've been starting to think about how place defines our own expectations for ourselves. And mm-hmm. so I've grown up in the Midwest. I'm from Ohio. I've lived almost my entire life in the same sort of region in Ohio and Midwestern culture, getting to understand that there are, you know, the expectations, the way that people sort of view life and life choices in the Midwest is very different than what it looks like in other places, like on the coast or anything or in the South. So even kind of understanding that my experiences could maybe resonate with someone else who's also within this sort of like Midwestern expectation to find a reliable job and Mm -hmm. to, you know, have that financial security and the stability and sort of like these normative roles as, as an adult, as a woman, as a mother. And so it's been really interesting to start to unpack that and think about how place is sort of defining who we are as individuals too. Yeah. And how do you feel like you have done that, have like started to unpack that? Well, I think I did my undergrad degree at Miami University in Ohio, Mm -hmm. not in Miami, Florida. (laughs) It's a small, (laughs) it's in Oxford, Ohio, a small sort of like corn town kind of place. And then I started teaching uh, shortly after graduate. And then from there, in the last couple of years, I started to look for opportunities for my graduate work. 
And I was able to find a really good opportunity through the Massachusetts College of Art and Design in Boston. Mm -hmm. And so I actually completed a low residency graduate degree through there. And so I would live in Boston for the summers and then work Mm. from home in Cincinnati during the school year. And within that process of like living in another city, living on the East Coast, getting to interact with people who had a very different upbringing or very different like ideas of what was the norm or what what people were used to was a really good experience and it allowed me to kind of take take a different perspective of my of my own life and to think a little bit more critically about my choices or the way that my choices are viewed by other people or you know just starting to think about that from a different perspective and i think getting outside of your comfort zone or getting outside of the region that you're familiar with mm-hmm. is such a good way for you to bring new insight into the way that you're living your life. And so even though I would only be in Boston for two months, I was surrounded by mostly people who were from the East Coast. And so it really helped to, you know, just kind of recognize some of the things that I was experiencing and understanding in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like no matter where you're from, that just a change of perspective makes such a big difference. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And so especially going to like Boston and kind of in the the Northeast area, the way that art <laughs> is emphasized mm-hmm. culturally is a little bit different than um, in the Midwest. And so it was really, it was really good to help me not only like experience new things, but also appreciate the types of things that were going on in my own community mm-hmm. that maybe I hadn't really noticed or paid attention to before and sort of celebrating and looking for more similar opportunities, you know, in my hometown. So yeah, that's been good as well. Oh, cool. Do you feel like you found more opportunities after that and more points of connection or other artists working back when you returned back to Ohio? Yeah, actually. So I just recently started a residency at Manifest Gallery here uh, in Cincinnati. Yeah, And Manifest is an awesome, really, really dynamic, institution or a group of group of people, little community. Mm-hmm. It's part gallery, it's part publication. They end up creating these really wonderful drawing and painting and photography publications. They have an artist residency component, and then they have the drawing center, which is a place where workshops and classes and, and really seriously minded individuals to come together outside of like a college or university setting. Mm-hmm. And so being awarded this residency first of all, was a huge thrill, but it also allowed me to check in to the community that was already here and um, kind of realize that I do have a place in it and and start to get to know other people who are here in Cincinnati, in Ohio, who are interested in the same kinds of things that I am. Because sometimes if you're not in a huge cultural center, it can be kind of tough to find your group because the the number of people who are creating art just isn't, it's not the same. Although I will take that back. There are a ton (laughs) of people here in Cincinnati who are making artwork and who love art. But I think it's partially even my own issue of just having the confidence to feel like I can be a part of that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And that's so exciting. Manifest, I know of them. They're an amazing organization. So that's awesome that you're doing a residency with them. Yeah, it's it's been really great, you know, with teaching full time and then having this residency, which is also considered like a full time position. (laughs) It's, uh, it's, It's a bit of a challenge. It's really 
it almost feels like another year of graduate school, which mm-hmm. I loved graduate school. So I have no complaints there, but it's been great to kind of take the momentum from my graduate work. And now without the same structure and framework of graduate school to still have support and you know accountability for continuing to take my work seriously and continuing to make new work as I move forward. So it's been honestly like the transition. I finished graduate school in the middle of August and then started the residency less than a month later. So it's been, <laughs> it was a quick turnaround, but I think it was, it was good in the, in the long run. It'll be really good for me. Wow. Yeah. That is super quick. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and what age levels are you teaching now? You're teaching full time. I want to hear more about all of the teaching stuff. Yeah, of course. So I'm now in my sixth year of teaching mm-hmm. at a public high school. It is in a, um, it's about 35, 40 minutes outside of the, the city of Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's actually the largest high school in the state. So Mm. we have a really big student population, which is wonderful in so many ways, but can also sometimes present some challenges. Mm -hmm. So I teach nine through 12, a variety of different courses. I've taught a little bit of everything over the years, but currently I mostly teach drawing and painting, cartooning, photography one, and then AP art history. I started doing that last year. Oh, cool. Yeah. And are you right now back in person or are you teaching virtually? What does your teaching situation look like right now? So we are currently, we started this way from the beginning of the year. We are full-time five days a week in person right now. So yeah, so I am seeing my classes very regularly. We did have a number of students. um, I don't remember the exact percentage, maybe like 20% of students at the high school who decided to stay remote for the school year, Mm -hmm. or at least for the first semester. And so they actually are not taking art classes with the online work that they're doing. Mm -hmm. So all of the students that I work with are in person, except when we have students who go into quarantine, Mm -hmm. either for having a positive COVID test themselves, or if they have been exposed to someone through contact tracing. Mm -hmm. So at any given point in time, I may have between like five and 12 students across all of my classes who are in quarantine and then trying to continue with the same course content, but from home. Mm -hmm. So that definitely produces a challenge because I'm designing things that are meant to be done in the classroom, but then trying to modify things and make it possible for students to still do it at home as well. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a little different than in the spring when our school shut down and everyone was remote the whole time. Mm -hmm. That obviously was super challenging, but it, you know, everyone was doing like was in the same place. So Mm -hmm. having that, you know, getting an email of like, oh, so-and-so is going to be out for the next two weeks. And then they're just gone (laughs) and trying to figure out how you're going to keep them engaged and and not fall behind and and make sure that they're still having a really good experience. That's been challenging, but I think it's also forced me to be more flexible and to just be, pay more attention to how students are doing on a daily basis. and, And, you know, reaching out and touching base when there seems to be an issue or, you know, if I haven't heard from someone in a few days. So there, there are some benefits to it because I think anytime that you're doing something the same way for too long, mm. it's easy to fall into those regular habits and routines, but having a wrench thrown in your plans, like a global pandemic for all of the many negative things that it obviously has brought into our lives, the fear and the loss in you know mm-hmm. everything, having to think about things differently is 
definitely a positive. It kind of forces me to stretch the way that I'm teaching and to think about what's really important Mm -hmm. and what's what I want my students to walk away with at the end of the semester. And I think that forces some editing that may not have happened otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. And do you see that also in your students that they're it's kind of forcing them to be more creative in their thinking? Yeah, I was, I guess that I just assumed because I, I liked, there were certain things that I liked about being like teaching from home, you know, Mm -hmm. being a little bit more in charge of your own schedule, getting to like hang out with my cat, (laughs) getting to, you know, go for a walk in the middle of the day if I wanted to. Mm -hmm. I was shocked when we got back to school at the beginning of the year and every single student was saying, I'm just so happy to be back here in person. I hated being at home. Like I had no idea how much students really loved the school environment Mm -hmm. because they don't always show that when they're in your (laughs) art class. So having the opportunity to hear them say like, we want to be here Mm -hmm. has been really nice to hear. And I think they are, I don't know, I think they're just viewing things differently. And they're, they're maybe putting forth some effort or taking not maybe not so much taking for granted, the experiences that they can have in person. Yeah. Uh, and do you feel like you're, are you feeling safe with how it's going teaching in person? Are you required to use lots of precautions? And is, has that just made teaching completely different in that respect, like not sharing supplies and having to like sanitize things? I'm very fortunate to be working in a district that has a lot of resources mm-hmm. and, you know, a very supportive community. So that I think that's huge. Yeah. And I'm in a very privileged situation in terms of what my school environment can do to support the students and to support the teachers. So I, there are a lot of things that have changed, you know, just even being mindful of like how close you are to someone, like proximity, just how, Mm -hmm. how close you are when you're having a conversation with a student or how long you're, you're remaining close to that student, even if you're trying to support them and help them, you know, learn something or revise something or like problem solve or whatever. Right. So I think just that like mental awareness kind of changes. It, it, I mean, we've, we notice that in our daily interactions too, when you're going to the grocery store, or when you're, you know, walking around or whatever, everyone's just very aware of that proximity, which mm-hmm. is something new because we're still, I have still a pretty large class size. It's definitely been cut down. I usually have like 24 students mm-hmm. in my room. So it's still a lot of people, but I think we we have sanitization processes. We Everyone's required to wear a mask at all times. Mm-hmm. The school administrators have been really good about the contact tracing and you know removing students from school if there's any chance that they may have been exposed to the virus. So there's a lot that's happening to ensure that our students are staying, are staying safe mm-hmm. and that our teachers are staying safe. So once you like kind of fall into that routine, teaching is still teaching. Mm-hmm. You're still interacting with the students. You're still problem solving on a daily basis. You're still, you still have some of the same issues that you would have had regardless. So we are now, I think we just finished week seven, maybe of school. Mm-hmm. I think it was week seven. <laughs> so I feel like I'm very much in the routine now mm-hmm. and it, it doesn't feel it, it, it's the new normal uh, or whatever, whatever normal is. It's something that I've kind of gotten used to. So I think we've figured out a way to make it work. Yeah, that's so good to hear. I mean, it's, 
it's scary to hear some of the stories from teachers, but so like heartening to hear places like yours where, you know, you really do have all the precautions and the admin and the district is taking it seriously and trying to make sure that everybody can go back safely and have, you know, there's the balance of being able to have that connection and to teaching in person is just so different from teaching online, but balancing that with the health and safety. So that's good to hear. I think one of the best things that have come out of just even the fact that we have to wear masks all day, every day, mm-hmm. is they really, our administrative team really supported us taking the students outside and having mask breaks. So if you're 10 feet away from someone, then you can take your mask off. And mm-hmm. so kind of enjoying the lovely early fall weather in Cincinnati and getting outside and actually like trying to have some educational activities happening outside. Mm -hmm. That's something that we typically didn't do because you get so into the structure of the school day that it's like, yeah, we can, we can go outside and we can have this conversation outdoors or Mm -hmm. we can take pictures outside instead of you taking them in the classroom or something like that. So there is just kind of a new awareness or some flexibility that's come into play that I think is actually making the school day more enjoyable or removing some of like the fast paced stress of it too. Yeah. Uh, So all the things that we hope are lasting changes. That's great. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Have you found any sort of resources or tools that are really helpful through all of this with your teaching? Yeah, I think the biggest resource has just been hearing what my colleagues are doing, Mm -hmm. being in such a large school district and having the number of staff that we do at the high school alone. Our our district is very supportive of teachers sharing out the good things that are working Mm -hmm. and sharing resources and that kind of thing. So I don't know that there's one particular resource, Mm -hmm. but just hearing other experiences, or I'm really fortunate at the high school, I teach with five other art teachers. And so getting the opportunity to collaborate with them and hear about how the changes that our ceramics teacher is making to the curriculum in order to make sure that students can still work from home or coming up with ideas with the other photography teacher and thinking about how we can kind of change our interactions or our usual routines and make them still just as meaningful or even in some ways more meaningful than they would have been before. So I think that collaboration aspect, that sharing, that willingness to listen to what's working for other people mm-hmm. and also what's working or what's not working for the student mm-hmm. really valuing like their input and their experiences to make sure that I'm like still constantly shifting and adjusting to serve them because that's, that's what teaching is all about. Yeah. And I feel like that maybe some of us had gotten away from that a bit. And this pandemic has really pushed that back to the forefront. Like you, you know, I keep hearing anyway, this focus on social and emotional learning and not necessarily only at the elementary level that that's just social and emotional learning is so important at all levels. And right now dealing with, you know, students that are experiencing trauma on some level, like all of us are through all of this. So yeah, exactly. And I think I have there are a couple things that I think have influenced this as well. 
one, having to work remotely myself as a teacher, Mm -hmm. you get this automatic empathy of understanding those kids who do have to quarantine or do have to be at home. Because I remember it was hard to focus at certain times, or Mm -hmm. I did get tired of staring at my computer screen, or it was very isolating to be away from people. So I have that experience from the spring of understanding of what it's like to be working in that kind of environment. And so it's easier to connect with those students who are doing that, even if it is just temporarily. And then the other aspect is at the high school, mental health is a huge topic that each year we're spending more and more time learning and talking about and figuring out how we can support our students. And so our administrative team was very clear at the beginning of the semester to put the syllabus, put the grading, the expectations, those kinds of things on the back burner at least at first, and really focus on the community and relationship building side of education. Mm -hmm. And that's always been something that's important to me. But I think having that as like a directive, like this is Mm -hmm. a goal, (laughs) like coming from the administrative team, really choosing to focus and to emphasize that connection with the students. I think that's really helped everyone feel a little bit more like emotionally safe during these uncertain times as well. Yeah. And have you found ways to talk about what's going on with students or to bring current events into their artwork or what you're teaching? Yeah, I think it, it kind of depends on the class, what class I'm teaching and, and different ways that that can come up organically or, or, mm-hmm. or be a meaningful discussion. Because I think the worst way or I mean, it's always good to approach topics that are important. But I think it can be sometimes a detriment if it's done in sort of like a rushed or hurried or more surface level way. Mm -hmm. So I think it is something just in every aspect of my teaching. I'm looking for better opportunities for representation or looking for ways to meaningfully bring in those topics or those conversations. I think in my AP art history class, that's been something that even when we're talking about global prehistory, or even when we're talking about the ancient Mediterranean, like ancient Greece and ancient Rome, or ancient Egypt, taking moments to think about like the impact or the way that history can be biased and how that has impacted so much about our day-to-day life today as well and our conceptions of things. Like, for example, when we were talking about ancient Greek sculpture, I found an article and had them had my students read about the fact that we have this collective idea or many of us have this collective idea that ancient Greek sculpture was, you know, the marble sculptures were all completely white and had this very pure monochromatic look to them when in fact they were highly colorful painted in all these different bright sort of loud colors Mm -hmm. with patterning and all this different nuance to that detail and the way we, we talked a lot about how not having that information not understanding it has shifted today the way that we view ancient Greece and the way that classical ideas of beauty and aesthetics are built on a foundation of fiction (laughs) Yeah. So thinking about how 
our understanding of color and our understanding of what is deemed to be beautiful or worthwhile of study can sometimes not even reflect what the actual objects looked like at that moment in time. And so mm. when we were talking about that, the article that we read also mentioned different white supremacist groups who were using classical, you know, marble sculptures in their imagery to promote their ideals. Mm. And we, we kind of unpacked that and talked about how troubling that is for the greater good of people and for humanity mm -hmm. of taking something that's not even an accurate component of our history and then twisting it into something that fuels hatred and propels belief systems that are harmful to people. So, and are harmful to all of us, regardless of whether we're a person of color or not. So yes. yeah, there, there have been some opportunities where we can get into those kinds of conversations in a way that really makes sense with the content area and helps the students sort of see things from a different perspective or maybe question some of the things that they had previously just accepted at face value. Mm -hmm. That sounds like such an amazing discussion. And if, if you would mind sharing that article, I would love to link to that. That sounds so interesting. Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to. Yeah, I think it was from the New Yorker. So it was okay. It's nice also to have something where the kids can, I like to have things that the kids can easily grasp onto. So mm -hmm. rather than solely focusing on like academic writings, giving them an opportunity to read something that they can understand the first time through and then be able to, you know, understand the relevance of that topic in our in our day to day interactions as well. So yeah, I'd be happy to share that. Yeah, wonderful. And do you feel like the student reaction to that and to that discussion? What was that like? Were they feeling like, wow, this is something I totally didn't know, like, <laughs> just completely changing, like having to take a moment and kind of change their perspective on things? Yeah, I think it was pretty surprising. I know mm -hmm. for me, like that, even just going from my own perspective, I found that to be just kind of shocking that mm -hmm. I almost felt like I had been lied to. Like, why has yeah. this not been mentioned when I was studying art history in college or, or whenever? And so being able to I think also highlight an instance where leaders or scholars or whoever is sort of seen as like the expert in an area where those experts have been wrong or where they mm -hmm. have realized that assumptions have been made that need to be corrected. I think that's mm -hmm. super powerful, especially for our youth, our young people today, because they are so much more engaged in what's going on in the world than even like I was as a student 10, 15 years ago. So mm -hmm. being able to share something with them where they can relate that to other aspects of life and, and the way that you can't stop at that surface level of experience, it's, it's up to you to dig a little bit deeper and to check your sources and figure out what's being told to you and why, and then sort of mm -hmm. reflecting on that and finding out more to make sure that you are educated in whatever opinions you might hold. So I think that, I think that was a great conversation for us to have. And I'm hoping that it really creates a good foundation for us as we move forward, especially as we start talking about artwork from other cultures around the world, and then eventually getting to contemporary art towards the end of the year. Yeah. 
And with your more studio classes, do you have time or make time for deeper discussions like that? And how are you bringing in different artists? What's I guess I have a whole bunch of questions <laughs> wrapped up into one. I'm like, and yeah. then what's your teaching style? Do you like... <laughs> Tell me everything. (laughs) Okay, I'd be happy to. So yeah, I would say that having those conversations is definitely a little bit easier with my upper level students. Um, Mm -hmm. I teach a combined drawing and painting level three and four class. And we're able to kind of get into some of the more like intense components of art and Mm -hmm. contemporary topics and everything a little bit more at that level because we don't have to just focus on like skill building. We have an Mm -hmm. opportunity. I really focus those, that upper level class on helping the students find their own artistic voice and thinking about what they want to say through their artwork. So we spend a lot of time analyzing images, looking at contemporary artists, talking about where these artists came from in terms of their own like journey, Mm -hmm. and then also what they're trying to say through their artwork. So that ends up being a great opportunity to look at artists from different cultures or backgrounds and sort of let them go through that discovery process. Then for my more introductory level courses, I really want them to, I guess my goal for them is to make them feel proud of the work that they're creating. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of self-confidence issues for artists or for students at that younger age, you know, whether they are a freshman in high school, or maybe they're a junior or senior, but haven't taken art class since elementary school. It's really about getting them to recognize that art is for them and contemporary art that's out there. Like you, you have the tools that you need to be able to engage with it. So kind of taking away some of the barriers, making it more accessible. So Yeah, whenever I can, I will bring in artists or even talk about like a show that I went to and kind of share some of the things that I took away as a way to sort of bridge that gap for them Mm -hmm. so that they feel like contemporary art is for them. Art history is for them. Art making is for them. Yes. And so in those like lower level classes, I really try to focus on them just kind of drawing on their own experiences and bringing themselves into their artwork because then you get such a diverse and like rich array of responses because they all have such unique backgrounds. And so getting them to share their stories or their interests or their point of view is I think a good place to start that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I feel like it's always so much more interesting when the focus is when you're not kind of teaching these sort of like cookie cutter projects (laughs) when you're, yeah, when you're really, seeing what comes out of each student. And for me, it also helped me get to know my students a lot better when I shifted sort of away from more project-based teaching and towards seeing like what each student was thinking about and where their ideas were coming from. Right. And I, and I think it's always a tough balance. And I Mm -hmm. think that's something I learned early on with my teaching, you know, coming out of undergrad and having this like excitement and energy for just like, just wanting the kids to make these fabulous things. Like I just wanted them to be amazing. But I think I, in having those lofty goals for them, I think I wasn't paying enough attention to where they actually were as students and as people. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that I was necessarily providing the right type of support that they needed or the structure that they needed. Mm -hmm. So now after I've been teaching for a few years, 
I really try to focus on giving students structure and support, showing them how to do something so that they are learning a new skill, Mm -hmm. but then opening it up so that they have an opportunity to kind of bring their own voice into it. And with with each level, you know, each higher level of a class, we open that up more and more Mm -hmm. and more because they've kind of warmed up to the idea and feel a little bit more ready to dive into content in a way that in the beginning, they're so they can be so hesitant and so scared and so unsure about what they're doing mm-hmm. that they do need a little bit more structure to feel like it's safe enough for them to do that. So I just over the years, I feel like I've gotten much better at listening to my students and understanding where they are and how I can push them from where they are, rather than just assuming that, oh, we can all jump to this next level. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more than that. Right. Yeah. There's, you know, the idea of scaffolding, but on a more individual basis. So you're kind of teaching in a way that lets it be scaffolded with students on many rungs of that kind of scaffolding, that ladder at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And then I also, that also brought up the idea of our aesthetics. And when you talked about having sort of these lofty goals for your students, and I'm picturing, you know, artwork that we as adults are drawn to and think like, this is, you know, beautiful, it belongs on my wall. And I totally struggle with that too, wanting my kids to create work that their parents want to frame. (laughs) And balancing like, okay, do I want to push them to create this or have them create something that they themselves want to tell the story of and frame that it's they're so proud of it because it was completely their own idea. And we might look at it and say, oh, I don't know if I really want to like put a frame on that. But okay, tell me the story of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just this kid aesthetic versus adult aesthetic. Well, and it's really interesting at the high school mm-hmm. level too, because you would think, I, I don't know, the, the level of like open-mindedness about students, it's very interesting. They're at a point in their lives developmentally where they just want their work to be as realistic mm-hmm. and look as close to the actual thing as it possibly can. And so they put so much value in that. And so trying to get them to appreciate like contemporary art that is installation based or experiential or something, even talking about like abstract expressionism, Mm -hmm. they have such a hard time. Some students do not, not everyone, of course, but some students have such a hard time with seeing the value in different forms of expression. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, it's really interesting because in high school, you can almost to a detriment assume that they are more mature in their thinking and more sophisticated in their thinking that they, than they are. And they bring so much to the table, but I also have learned to recognize and understand where they're coming from in terms of what they think is cool and what they value and what, what they think is important. Mm-hmm. And then obviously trying to stretch that and expand it and, and open their eyes to new forms of making but still honoring their own perspective of what their goals are as an artist in this moment in time, because a 16 year old artist is very different from a 22 year old artist and so on and so forth. So I think kind of keeping where they are developmentally in mind is super important too, to make sure that they are as engaged as they possibly can. And I'm not just sharing things that I love because I think it's so cool but also trying to find a way where I can share things that are actually going to impact them in some way 
and not be so alienating that they they can't even really process what's going on with the work. Yeah, uh, it sounds like you're creating such a foundation for just embracing art making and the whole process and, you know, critical thinking that if any of your students want to continue being artists, I feel like it sounds like they're really set up to keep making and keep learning and changing. Yeah, well, thank you. And I and I do think it's important. It's important for students, whether they are going on, because at the high school level, I do interact with some students who are planning to go into visual arts in some capacity. Mm-hmm. But the majority of the students I see are not. And so my goal for them is to, you know, feel comfortable going to an art museum Mm -hmm. or to be able to like see something and and recognize the value or or maybe have be feel confident in understanding or interpreting a work of art based on their own experiences and not feeling like they are not an artist, so they don't know Mm -hmm. anything, so they they can't like a certain work of art or they you know, they need someone to tell them what to think about something. I, I really want them to feel more confident in their ability to interact with art, whether they're making it or not. Yes, that's an incredible skill that I feel like so many adults need are lacking that or just, you know, like you said, lacking the confidence, like they have ideas about art, but they're, you know, nervous to share them or, you know, not sure like, oh, is it the right idea, you know, which doesn't exist. It's, it's a subjective thing. Right, right. right. And so making it, I think that idea of accessibility becomes really important because, you know, regardless of whether these students are going to go on to pursue art full time or not, and again, most of them will not, Mm -hmm. they are going to be out there in the world. They're going to be eventually, you know, citizens who can vote, citizens who can Mm -hmm. contribute financially or even culturally or even just within their own family unit or friend circle. They have the opportunity to share art with other people or to continue to engage with art for their entire lives. Mm -hmm. So high school is such a great opportunity to make sure that they realize that art is for them and art is something that they can continue to interact with for many, many years to come. Yes. I so, so, so appreciate your written reviews. It is incredibly meaningful to hear your feedback and how these conversations inspire, encourage, and entertain you. So if you're enjoying the show and you want to continue to support the show, reviews make such a difference, and they don't cost any money. You can leave a review by just scrolling to the bottom of wherever you're listening to this and hitting the five stars or writing what you've enjoyed about the show so far. Another fabulous and free way that you can support the show is to share the episodes you're listening to on Instagram or your favorite social media, Facebook, Twitter, I don't know, whatever you have. Screenshot and share to your stories in Instagram. It makes me so happy to see you folks listening to this in your studios, on your commute, in your classroom, and to hear what your takeaways are. Don't forget to tag Teaching Artist Podcast so I can see it. And if you want to also tag my personal account, you can, and that is Pots Art, P-O-T-T-S-A-R-T. Well, 
I would love, we've spent a lot of time on teaching, which has been so interesting and I feel like enriching for me, but I would love to hear more about your artwork, which is just beautiful. I saw it before we talked and had been kind of following what you were doing. So I would love to hear if you could describe your work for someone who hasn't seen it. Sure. Well, and thank you so much. I've been trying really, really hard more recently to share more about what I'm doing and to just, again, confident. It's all about confidence of, you know, putting your work out there and, you know, understanding that your voice is valid regardless of what experiences you've had in the past. And so my artwork is, most of it is painting. I use gouache, which the type of gouache I use is acrylic gouache. So it has a very like matte finish to it. Mm -hmm. And I paint a lot of still lifes and interior scenes focused on the domestic environment, as well as like my studio space. Mm -hmm. And previously my studio space was in my domestic environment, Mm -hmm. but fortunately now that I have this residency, it's challenging me to think about that a little bit differently because my studio is far outside of my domestic environment. So Mm -hmm. getting an opportunity to think about my work in a new way. My work ends up using a lot of repetition. I end up referencing older works of art, you know, having them within the same image space. I work with painting a lot of plants mm-hmm. and furniture and clothing items and just trying to sort of think through time and identity and memory and expectation through mm-hmm. these objects and through these different compositions. So that's sort of, I think, just a, a little summary of, of what my work is about. Yeah, well, I definitely notice the repetition and, you know, throughout the images, but also just the way that you use the line and these repeated lines or patterns within each piece. It really draws me in. And then I'm also, I love the textile pieces Could you talk more about those and just how they completely tie in with your paintings? Yeah, sure. So yes, I would, I, I would agree. The line work is super important within my work. Just to touch briefly on that. Mm -hmm. I was trained as a more in in more traditional forms of oil painting in my Mm -hmm. undergrad. And it wasn't until the last few years where, especially with grad school, that I've become more experimentative with the way that I paint and trying to find a style of painting that feels more authentic to who I am as an individual, my personality, the way that I interact with the world. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that I've been able to push that experimentation is through work with textiles. So I have long been like drawn to clothing or, you know, pattern within fabric, looking at the types of clothing items or or fabric that I surround myself with just in my wardrobe or in bedding or anything sort of in my domestic environment. And so for a long time, I was just painting these items. And then eventually through grad school, I was really encouraged to try cutting things up and playing with them in a more literal way, as opposed to just keeping them as precious objects. Mm -hmm. So my textile work, I really view it as a way to push myself forward in different directions. And so I typically work with, well, always work with the clothing that's sort of been cycled out of my wardrobe. Mm -hmm. So I don't buy any new fabric. I'm only working with things that, you know, an old shirt from three years ago that got a or was worn out or 
whatever, and then use that to create any of the sculptural or collage forms that I'm creating with fabric. So it really has become another way to integrate time and sort of like a bodily experience Mm -hmm. because these items used to be wrapped around my body and now they're creating new forms and existing within artwork in different ways. So for example, I have some soft sculpture work that I've done. I recreated one of my dining room chairs that was inherited from my sister when she moved across the country. I got all of her old furniture. (laughs) And so I ended up doing this two-scale replica of the wooden chair out of fabric. (sighs) And so as a way to kind of explore that relationship and, and kind of thinking about time and support in the way that we interact with things that are comforting mm-hmm. or the way that we even like take care of ourselves and take care of relationships that we have in our lives. Yeah. And it, I feel like it tells stories about the body in space and how you talked about these being former clothing wrapped around the body. So that feels like an important theme there as well. These domestic spaces and then like domestic fabrics as well. Yeah. And I, you know, I really am drawn to portraiture. A lot of the artists that I admire work in portraiture or have the human body existing within space, but I haven't painted the human form or or done anything with a, you know, a tangible human form in a very long time. And I'm really interested in the way that human presence can be felt and represented in ways that are not quite so literal. So all of my works feel very much in line with portraiture to me. However, there's never the human form there. So it's sort of this intangibility of experience within space or the way that identity manifests itself through these traces or these (laughs) these pieces of evidence through a particular place. Yeah, then that speaks to the absence of the person. And there's so many artists dealing with that as well. I'm thinking of it because that's a topic that I've talked about in teaching where, you know, doing still lifes or doing like drawings of objects, we think about, you know, what's the meaning behind these objects? What's the meaning behind these spaces? And, you know, if it's a space with no person or it's an object that's like clearly something important to someone, like what does it tell you about their, about that person and their identity? Yeah. And and that's definitely central to my work Mm -hmm. because I am so interested in storytelling. I'm so interested in themes of narrative, hearing other people's stories, thinking about my own personal history and the objects that we interact with, the spaces that we inhabit tell so much about who we are and what we value and, you know, maybe maybe the things that we don't value, the things that are we view as weaknesses or, or negatives about who we are, those can sometimes bring just as much to the table in terms of how we experience the world. And so I think looking for those more nuanced interactions or, or nuanced ways of thinking about place can be really important too. Yeah. And thinking about that storytelling and 
telling stories about other people. Do you ever thrift your fabric or would that be something you're interested in? Or is it more important to keep it with that history of your own, like it was worn by you, it's your own belongings? Yeah, I've actually done a little bit of both. Some of the fabric that I was working with in the beginning of my graduate program, I actually got from a thrift store in Boston. Mm -hmm. It was sort of a, a bit of a surreal experience because I bought it by the pound oh, wow. from a, a mountain of clothing <laughs> that I was able to actually walk through. So it was, oh. I think that subconsciously affected me in ways that maybe even now I'm just realizing how much that played its way into my work. But yeah, so I have, I do have some fabrics that I got from that experience. They were, I chose the patterns and the clothing based on what felt in line with me and who I am. And so despite the fact that I've never worn these items, they've sort of been incorporated into the larger collection of fabrics that I work with. So there is this little bit of, I don't know, it, it, it's, it's kind of, I'm still kind of thinking about what that means. Mm -hmm. it, they're almost like adopted clothing pieces uh. because <laughs> they weren't mine, but they have become mine. And so, yeah, they're, I, I don't know. It's, it's something that I, I still am thinking through and, and I do some collage work really as a way to continue to experiment. Mm. And with those collages, I'm working with found images and, you know, taking in these things that do not come from me. And there's, when you're working with found images, you let go of some of that control as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a good, it's helped me continue to think through things a little bit differently as well. Uh, yes. There's so I'm like taking notes and I love the idea of adopted clothing. I feel like that could be the title of a whole series. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've never I actually haven't thought about it that way until this conversation. So uh, I think just any time that you are having to share your work and explain it, you mm -hmm. come up with ideas in the moment. And I, yeah, that might be one that I have to explore a little bit further. Yes, yes. And I love that. You know, it's totally true for me as well, just having to talk about my work. And then even these conversations talking about someone else's work, I feel like brings so many ideas up. And, you know, this, you were just talking about the idea of control. And I definitely feel like that's something so many artists kind of have this push and pull with controlling, controlling the mark, their hand, controlling like what they're trying to say and turning over, like choosing materials that kind of make them force them to give up control a little bit. I know I definitely do that as well. <laughs> so that's an interesting topic just within, like I hear it time and time again from artists. Yeah. And I, and I think it's like another thing with my practice that I remember I was talking with one of my mentors that I've worked with. She is a professor at the University of Cincinnati and she, I worked with her for two semesters during graduate school. Mm -hmm. She was just absolutely wonderful and sharing her own experiences as an artist, but then also helping me to understand the importance of just doing something, mm -hmm. even if you're not sure of what you're trying to say, saying it anyway, or doing something and figuring out what you're saying mm -hmm. after you create it. So that has really helped a lot in terms of fighting like creative block or 
or feeling like I'm stuck on something. Like when I started this residency, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do because I was in this new experience and outside of my home environment. And so I just started painting <laughs> random things. And then, you know, over time you accumulate and you start to figure out or edit things down. And eventually you get somewhere that you couldn't have predicted, but is helpful in some way in terms of your thinking. Yes, that's such great advice for any artist from, you know, our youngest students up to us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just do it. Sometimes you just have to do it and not be afraid of whether you're going to like it or not, because you can always, well, you can always throw it away if you're <laughs> it or whatever, right. but you can also, I think, well, I'll make a painting of something and be like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to use that for anything. And then it'll show up in the background of mm. something else. And then it's not the original painting that has the importance, but it ended up directly influencing and becoming a part of something else. So mm-hmm. I think that the way that I use repetition and, and sort of use my own artwork as source imagery mm-hmm. kind of helps with that process because I'm never starting from, you're never starting from zero. You have all these experiences that happen prior to where you are right now that can influence you in very direct or indirect ways. And bringing all of that into your work. Oh, as we were talking, I was also thinking about another artist who I actually have interviewed and is a friend, but I feel like she would be someone you would really connect with, uh, Danielle Nilsson. She also works with textiles and collage and painting. So in some somewhat similar ways, like using a lot of pattern and bright colors. Yes, I do follow her on Instagram. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And I think she might follow me too. So I think through social media, we have a little bit of a connection, but yes, I love, I love her work, her use of color, her, the habitual process that, that she uses of making collages every day or, mm-hmm. or, or she was at one point. So I, yeah, I love, I love being able to see how other people are working through similar ideas or similar processes in, in different ways. Yeah. And I, it's so interesting to hear I just start to think about like, what are the overlaps and then how you both are making really incredible work that has all these overlaps, but also each has, you completely have your voice and she has her voice. And, you know, it's not like, I guess what I'm trying to say is there, it's not pie (laughs) that like there's room for all of us and it just enriches, like it makes it so much richer to have people working in maybe with similar materials or in similar ways, or even with similar ideas that then still have their own like distinct voice. Yeah. And I think that's one of the most interesting things that happens when you talk to another artist or a group of artists, Mm -hmm. no matter how visually different work ends up looking, the more you talk, you will always find connections in terms of what people are working through or or what they're thinking about. And I just think that's so, it's so powerful to interact with someone who has work that looks nothing like yours and realize that there's some core element that you both gravitate towards and that informs your practice and being able to talk through that, you know, I I think that's just really important to, to look for those opportunities and to continue to have conversations with other artists. Yes, yes, definitely so enriching. You know, you can get kind of lost in your own isolated studio sometimes. So yeah, having those discussions is super helpful. Right. And I would love to hear a little bit about your like kind of 
your take on the business side of art and the like admin side. Maybe if you could talk about how you kind of seek out opportunities and whether you're selling work and if you are, how that, how you kind of go about doing that. Yeah, I think there's still so much with the admin side that I'm oh. still trying to get better at. <laughs> yeah. And I think probably most people to a certain degree are thinking that they could probably do more. Yeah. But yeah, I think the more recently, I've really just been focusing on trying to apply for more and more opportunities. Mm-hmm. This year, I applied to like dozens of different things, which I was really happy about. And I got into some and obviously got rejected from many, mm-hmm. but it really was a goal of mine for this year to put my work out there more with the hopes of obviously having it shown. And so that's sort of been a priority for me this year is just taking those opportunities, trying to find calls for art, trying to find different ways to share my work, whether it's a physical exhibition, whether it's a digital or print publication, or Mm -hmm. whether it's an online exhibition. So that's definitely been something that I've been trying to do a lot more. And I have my big spreadsheet where I put in, you know, all of the different information about the calls for art. So then like next year, I can look back and check in on those same things and can continue to add to it. Mm. In terms of selling, that's something that I still, I think that's going to be the next step for me mm-hmm. of trying to really take that side of my artistic practice forward. Because I think I've been so wrapped up in graduate school. I just, you know, came off of finishing my degree. And now with the residency, my main focus has just been creating the work. Mm -hmm. And so showing it is obviously the next step and then starting to think about how I can share it in a more direct way with actually allowing people to purchase and have it in their homes. So I, I don't, I haven't sold much at this point. And a lot of that's because I haven't made it a priority. So that is something that's a goal moving forward to figure out what makes the most sense for my work and how I can do that in a, in a way that I can still manage in terms of the balance with teaching and making artwork and all of that. Yeah, it can feel really overwhelming to have (laughs) just all the time that it takes to handle the admin and like business side of it. Right. So I completely understand, especially like while you're full-time teaching, doing an MFA. (laughs) I, yeah, I can't imagine also having like a focus on selling during all of that. Right. And each call for entry, there are certain requirements for the images Mm -hmm. and certain materials that they need. So it's never just a quick submission. It takes some time to think through things and make sure that you are showcasing your work in the best possible way. So yeah, I, it's just each year I try to keep, keep building that, that professional side of my practice more and more. I still feel like, you know, when I think about it four years ago, I wasn't even really making art that regularly Mm -hmm. because I was so focused just on just teaching and getting my career in that aspect underway. So I, I think sometimes I can have very, very high expectations for myself. So also realizing that like, there is time. I have plenty of time to figure things out and and to continue moving forward in all directions and trying to just focus on what I can do on a given day, I think is one way to work through that. Yeah. It's a marathon, not a sprint. For sure. For sure. And I've run a few marathons, so I can talk from experience with that. Yes. Oh, I was a sprinter in high school. So I have to constantly remind myself like, no, slow down. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And 
Oh yeah. So I think also over the years, like I, I was in high school and even in college athletics, I, I was a pole vaulter and I played tennis and mm-hmm. I would run all the time. And so I had all of these different interests and it's just, I have to constantly remind myself, what is my priority and make mm-hmm. sure that I am putting art making at the top of my list because long-term that's, that's what I want to be doing. That's where my passions really are. Obviously teaching as well, but really making sure that even though it's not a, at this point, it's not contributing anything financially, mm-hmm. but holistically as an individual, it is who I am and it is how I feel happy and successful and, and how I really view myself. So making sure that despite all of the other distractions that can be going on, that I'm really prioritizing something that is so important to me. Yes. And just what it, even if it's not contributing financially, what else it contributes to your life? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned too this challenge that we all deal with that every application is a little bit different. The requirements are a little bit different, which just made me think maybe we need to create a like common application the way they have yes. that for college. <laughs> yes, I know. Isn't an art common app. <laughs> I know. Even just the file information alone, thinking about like what DPI oh. and image size and file naming like so yeah it can kind of drive you a little bit crazy when you're trying to keep track of everything and so even just the mental capacity that it takes to make sure that you are putting your best foot forward and you know not getting your work eliminated because you didn't follow the rules of the application process yeah that the common app I I'm a proponent of that (laughs) okay how do we make it happen yeah Yeah. let's let's get Let's figure this out. Yeah. Anybody listening, (laughs) make this happen. Yeah. Yeah. So I would love to get into a couple of just fun, more like get to know you questions. So one that's really broad and I kind of love how broad it is. What are you curious about right now? That's a great question. And one that I always love to go back to because that's what drives pretty Mm -hmm. much everything that you do. You should be curious. You should have questions about what you're making artwork about. Or, or what you're thinking about. Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest thing that I'm focusing on right now is just looking at feminism from different perspectives and really understanding mm-hmm. how feminism is related to place, related to like culture on a more regional level or different ways of thinking about cultural experience. So I have a few books that I've started to read that are really focusing on either like girlhood and identity through the lens of place. And then another a little bit more on feminism versus conservatism in the Midwest and Mm. leading to where we are today. So that's something, those I think are the biggest topics that I've been looking at recently, just trying to understand as a 21st century feminist artist in our current political climate, understanding Mm. where I come from, just both from a personal level and then a more cultural level as well. Yeah. And what are those books? I would love to check them out too. Sure. So again, I can't offer a full recommendation yet because I've just started reading both of them. Yeah. But one is called Girlhood and the Politics of Place, Mm. edited by Claudia Mitchell and Carrie Rentschler. And then the other is called Big Sister, Feminism, Conservatism, and Conspiracy in the Heartland by Erin M. And yeah, so both of those books are kind of thinking about feminism in different ways. And, you know, through my own experiences as a young woman, as a young woman from 
Ohio, as a young woman from Ohio, living a more heteronormative lifestyle and living, being a friendly, open, positive person, I I just, I want to learn more about the culture that has shaped me and how my experiences have been formed through the experiences of others and where we are historically and politically, but then also just understanding how my experiences differ from other people around the world too. So I just mm-hmm. think some people can have a very limited view of what feminism means. And I think the only way moving forward that we can really make progress is if we accept the multiplicity that comes with feminist ideology. Everyone has their own perspective. And in order for women to be treated equally, we have to honor the different choices that people make in their lives and honor experiences from those situations. Yeah. And you were talking earlier about work looking very different or even using different materials, but coming back to similar ideas. And as you're talking, I'm I've been with my own work in a critique group where I've been talking a lot about this, like, you know, this eco-feminism idea and how does place connect with like womanhood? (laughs) So such similar ideas. So I love that. Yeah. And I think it's just, it's just understanding more of the big picture, like taking your own personal Mm -hmm. experience and understanding how you fit into a bigger picture and then not just stopping there, but then understanding how you can elevate others and be a positive person out there in the world to help raise the voices of other people who may not have an opportunity to share their perspectives. So there are just so many levels to it. And I'm curious and excited about all of them. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Amazing. Okay. Another fun, just get to know you question. What is your go-to order at your favorite restaurant? Well, I actually live right by a sushi restaurant that opened Mm. up about a month after I moved into my apartment. I've only been here. I made the choice to move mid-pandemic, so I don't know if that was a good choice or not, but it's worked out so far. But yeah, there's a sushi restaurant right by my apartment, and I love sushi, and so it's actually a little, maybe a little too convenient to grab carry out or to grab some food from there. But yeah, so a good like spicy crab or spicy shrimp roll. That's that's usually where I end up going for that. Nice. I always say sushi to this question yeah. too. So yes, <laughs> so good. Sounds good. <laughs> yes. Uh, is there anybody that you would want to thank or give a shout out to? I think definitely in my family, they've been super supportive throughout the process of me with my graduate degree and, you know, just trying to move forward as an artist and as an educator. And then also the mentor, Denise Burge, I worked with her through my graduate program. And she's who I mentioned earlier, who is a professor. Mm-hmm. She really just as an artist and as a mentor just brought so many different ideas into our discussions. And she was so gracious with sharing her own experiences. And so it was great to have someone who has really dedicated their lives to the things that I'm most passionate about and getting to hear from her experiences. So she definitely deserves a shout out. She's awesome. Uh, Yes. People like that are so important as we're kind of figuring all of this out. Yes. And last thing, where can our listeners connect with you online? So Instagram is probably the best way. My Instagram account is hrzimmermanart. And that's where, uh, again, I'm trying to be better and better about posting more regularly to share my process and, and the work that I'm creating. 
And then I also have a website, hrzimmerman.com. So both of those places would be where you can find me. Awesome. And I will link to those as well. Thank you so much, Hannah. Thank you, Rebecca. This really has been such a pleasure. I'm very honored to be included. You just talked to so many wonderful people and had so many different perspectives brought to the table. So I know that I've really learned a lot from the different people who have already gone through your interviews. So I really appreciate the opportunity to be included as well. Thank you. I so appreciate hearing feedback like that. And I feel like it's so meaningful to me. Sometimes it is, it gets this feeling that I'm like just putting it out there into like a void and I'm not sure (laughs) what's happening once, once these conversations are out in the world. But having them like, you know, like you said, just talking with you today was so inspiring and insightful. And I feel like even talking about someone else's work, like talking about your work really brought new ideas up for me. So thank you for that as well. Of course. Well, and I think I just love the platform that you've created where you are highlighting the equal importance of us as educators and as artists. So often when I am involved in professional development or doing something that is more related to like the art making side of things, it ends up it's either one or the other. And so having an opportunity to really recognize and value the way that those two parts of our lives intersect and challenge mm-hmm. and, and push the other one forward. I, I just think that's a great way to approach it. It's for one whole person. Yes. So even if you have multiple sides of things that you're doing, you can't ever separate them completely. So I just love this approach that you've taken in honoring both both parts of that experience. Uh, Yes, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Hannah. Now be sure to check out the blog post where I've linked to not only Hannah's work, but the books that she mentioned, as well as the New Yorker article she talked about sharing with her students about whiteness in classical Greek sculpture. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or Teaching Artist Podcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of teaching artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you. Thank you.